with your host, Stephanie Arnold. Welcome to the show today, Charles Mott. Now, formally you are Charles, but I understand most people call you Chip. That's right. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is uh, Chip Mala. I am the managing director in Sacramento, California. All right, Chip. Well, thank you for being here. And we always like to start with a question of the day. So my question for you is, do you have any pets? I do. I have a dog, a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. She is almost 12, and her name is Cayenne. Aw. I'm a dog and person, she's, too. She's our second Cavalier King Charles Spaniel uh-huh. from the same breeder. Oh. So I understand you are here to talk about employment law. Is that correct? Damages relating to employment law. That's right. How long have you been working in that field? I've been involved in testifying employment cases for coming up on 16 years since March of my first case was in March of 2002. Can you talk to us about what allegations are typically made where an economics expertise would be needed? Sure. Well, I've been involved in cases where the allegations include gender, age, or racial discrimination, usually wrapped around wrongful termination. In addition, I've worked in matters where the allegations relate to failure to promote, where someone's argued that they have been skipped over for promotions. I've also been involved in cases involving allegations of failure to actually hire, where someone was passed over for a hire, where they were the, they argued they were the most qualified candidate. My role comes into play in all of these areas when an individual has suffered an interruption or diminishment of their earnings and benefits as a result of the alleged inappropriate behavior. And your role is to quantify the economic impact of the alleged conduct of the plaintiff? That is right. Yes, that's correct. Could you talk to us a little bit about how an economist performs a damage analysis in an employment case? Sure. Well, we're essentially uh, the role of the economist is to compare two different states of the world, two economic states of the world. One, which I refer to oftentimes as the, the, the but-for world, the, the world but-for the alleged bad act, and we compare that to the actual world. And it's essentially a comparison of the earnings and benefits that one would likely have generated had the bad act never occurred, and we compare that to the likely earnings and benefits of the individual now that the bad act has in fact occurred. The difference between those two states of the world is essentially the damage that we're looking at. Now, that sounds like your analysis has to take a lot of information into account when doing a loss estimation. I thought we'd talk about the major issues you run into in your employment damage analysis. Can you give me an idea of what major issues you run into in doing your work? In other words, are there major areas in your analysis to which an opposing expert might take exception? Well, there are a number of areas where the experts typically don't disagree. One area is how long someone might likely work, how long they'll be engaged in the workforce. There are statistics to generate some estimation about that for individuals. We typically don't have problems in the area of life expectancy if the damage analysis is going to take someone out to their full life. Those are areas where economists don't typically disagree. But there are some areas where the two economists are likely to have a disagreement because they've used 
different parameters. As we discuss them, I'll note where non-economist experts or attorneys themselves drive some of the parameter choices the economists use. But it's safe to say that there are the differences that we come to in our analysis across economists are oftentimes driven by these different parameters. So your analysis isn't necessarily self-contained. You rely on inputs from others for some of your analysis. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's almost always true, Um, whether it's an assumption I'm asked to make by an attorney or an earnings level I'm asked to adopt by a vocational expert. We often use other experts that provide parameters for our, for our analysis. Before we get into using those types of experts, can you highlight the major areas where analysis between the two economic experts can vary? The first area has to do with the earnings the plaintiff would have likely earned had the discrimination or termination never occurred. The second uh, is the com- composition and levels of additional earnings and benefits the plaintiff would have likely earned had the discrimination or firing not occurred. And these additional benefits include things like health benefits, bonuses, overtime, things of that nature. The third area focuses on the appropriate length of time that a terminated employee needs to find alternative employment. And in fact, what exactly constitutes quote-unquote alternative employment. And the fourth area of some disagreement has to do with the likely growth path of alternative earnings and how long the damages may exist for the plaintiff. Clearly, it sounds like the no termination earnings and earnings with termination are keys to the ultimate damage figure you drive, aren't they? That's right. Now, there are some additional issues we probably won't get into today that can have a major impact on the total damage figure that the expert calculates. One example would be the discount rate. That's an area where experts can have disagreement, but those disagreements are derived from a a different approach or a different methodology employed by the expert opposed to parameters that we're asked to make by counsel or a vocational expert. We're not going to talk about that particular issue today. Perhaps we can talk about that issue on another podcast. We'll bring you back. (laughs) But for today, I think we can briefly highlight the issues surrounding the earnings profiles and growth both with and without termination. Well, let's start with your first issue, and that was the likely growth of earnings of the plaintiff had the termination never occurred. What sorts of issues do you grapple with here? Well, the first issue is an actual accounting of what those earnings are. What comprises the individual earnings? Oftentimes, an individual has regular base pay. They may have overtime or shift differentials. There are typically other particular payments in certain lines of work that are contractually obligated by the employer to be paid. And an accounting has to be done of those particular earnings. And based on those current earnings, the number one issue is what are the likely earnings in the years following the termination discrimination? Chip, what kinds of data do you look at to determine that? Well, not surprisingly, it depends. If the plaintiff had a lengthy tenure with the employer, We want to look at historical earnings over a period that gives us a genuine feel for what the future earnings stream might look like. So the past can give insights into the future? Exactly. However, this isn't always true. For example, if the past earnings profile includes past promotions where there are distinct income jumps and ongoing promotions are not likely to occur into the future, we have to take into account that those 
those promotions impacted the growth of past historical earnings, but may not have much of an impact on future earnings. And so we need to adjust the future growth to account for earnings increases that do not include such promotions. What about the reverse situation? Uh, suppose an employee hasn't had any or many promotions in the past, but now has enough experience where p- future promotions are possible or you know, very likely. How do you deal with that? If available, we'd look at growth patterns of comparable employees. If we can show that the plaintiff was similarly situated to other employees um, who didn't suffer from the discrimination or the wrongful acts, these other employees' earnings profiles can give us some insight into what the plaintiff's earnings might have looked like. We do have to be careful, however. What do you mean? Well, promotions are often very personnel-specific event. They tend to happen to specific people for specific reasons. In addition, not everyone can get promoted. There have been a number of cases I've worked on where an, an individual has argued they should have been promoted. However, if you look at the department in which they worked, there was no real room for another individual promoted to the position they think they should have been promoted to. And so you have to be careful about uh, promoting and, and assuming promotions in the future, unless it makes economic sense. Are there times when promotions are a little less speculative? In some cases, yes. For example, there are a number of public service positions, like firemen and police officers, where there are, uh, there's a pretty set timeline of occupying certain positions before being promoted. In such cases, promotions are actually part of the general earnings profile, and, and in those situations, an appropriate expectation can be gleaned from the pattern of coworkers' experience or from the contractual obligations of the employer. Is the assumption of promotions one of those areas where you get input from others? Like, In other words, are you sometimes asked to assume a timeline for promotion? That's correct. Uh, sometimes that assumption comes from counsel, who intends to prove through evidence that an individual was likely to receive a promotion. Other times I'm asked to make an assumption about a promotion by a vocational expert who has who holds the opinion that the plaintiff was likely to receive a promotion in a given time period. So sometimes other experts give you a, that assumption? Yes, I I often work in conjunction with vocational experts, and these are individuals who have a particular expertise in in vocational training and skills assessment. And these are individuals who oftentimes interview the plaintiff. They they run some aptitude and uh, capacity tests. They may determine that a plaintiff would likely receive a promotion and then opine about that. In those cases... I no longer own that assumption. That's now an assumption that the vocational expert is planning to opine about it at trial. Well, let's go back a little bit to growth earnings over time. How do you estimate that? Sometimes I use historical growth patterns. Sometimes I use specific earnings growth data from third parties, like the the Department of Labor or other third parties who do surveys to determine growth rates over time. I've used uh, simple cost indices. Uh, employment wage indices from the Department of Labor. And I've used all three of these things, depending on the circumstances. The important thing for me is to try to ensure that the growth rate that I do use can be supported by other evidence and that it makes economic sense. Let's turn to the second issue uh, that you need to deal with. And I believe you said that's the composition of levels of and the changes in additional earnings and 
benefits. What are the issues in this area? Well, here we want to be sure we properly account for all additional earnings and benefits that the plaintiff would have likely earned. Some of those additional earnings include things like bonuses, overtime pay. In some positions, uh, there are stock options. Oftentimes, there are retirement benefits, either in the form of 401ks or contributions to a retirement plan. And of course, health benefits are a big a big component of, of potential additional earnings. Would you mind giving us just a bit more of a breakdown for our listeners? Many employers provide a host of different benefits. A good example is our health benefits um, in the form of health insurance. Many employers contribute to the health benefit insurance plans that employees receive. In fact, a lion's share of of the cost of those health insurance plans are oftentimes picked up by the employer. And while those benefits are not in the form of cash paid to the employee, they certainly have economic value, and they're a, a valuable component of one's overall compensation. There's other things like overtime and bonuses in addition to 401k contributions or contributions to other defined defined benefit uh, retirement plans. And how does the value of these additional earnings slash benefits that you've been talking about come into play in your damage work? Well, often when an employee is terminated and forced to find alternative work, the value of their total compensation is impacted. Obviously, if a terminated employee loses a job that has a base salary of, let's say, $75,000 and finds a new position that pays only $55,000, we'd say that that employee's harmed uh, by, well, at least initially, by by $20,000 per year. However, suppose the job lost had no bonus structure or health benefits in the form of employer-paid health insurance, but the new job does. We would need to know what the expected value of these things will be to determine the true harm. Uh, For example, if bonuses and health insurance in the new job amount to $15,000 per year, the true harm to the employee is really only $5,000 as opposed to 20000 since they're receiving an additional benefit worth 15000 in their new position. Can it also be the case that the employee had a great benefits at his or her old job and then finds a new job with lesser benefits? Yes, and that's surprisingly, well, maybe not surprisingly, that's, that's, a, that's the case more times than not. Suppose the old job paid that seventy-five thousand as a base salary, but also paid an average of twenty thousand in bonus and provided health benefits worth another fifteen thousand per year. If the new job pays fifty-five thousand in base salary and has ten thousand in bonus and say five thousand in health benefits, then the harm isn't limited to the twenty thousand dollar differential in base pay. Here, the employee is likely to lose an additional 10000 in bonus, and another 10000 in health benefits. So here, while the loss in base pay is 20000 the total loss is 40000 And so, again, we have to take those benefits and additional earnings into account to determine the true economic harm. How do you go about valuing these things like bonuses and 401k contributions and health benefits? Preferably, there will be historic data that informs one as to what those values are. When such data don't exist, looking at similarly situated employees' benefits can provide insight. 
As for 401k and health benefits, we can use government stats on average employer contributions if no other data are available. Uh, again, in all instances, we want to ensure that we recognize any shifts in benefit policies that may have taken place at the firm accused of the wrongful termination. What do you mean? For example, companies often change their 401k matching contribution levels over time. Uh, sometimes they match, let's use an example, 4%, and then increase or decrease that matching amount by a percentage point based on company financial health. During the, the Great Recession back in the 08, 09 period, we saw a reduction in company contributions in 401ks just out of financial need. As the economy has improved and those companies have recovered and, and gotten into a better financial situation, they've re-engaged in those contributions. And so we have to make sure that we account for any systemic changes that a company may make in its contribution levels. Chip, your third issue area has to do with alternative employment. What is considered alternative and how long should it take a displaced employee to find such employment? Can you explain this for us? Clearly, the ultimate damage estimation we calculate will be driven in part by how successful the plaintiff is at finding comparable alternative employment with earnings and benefits similar to or sometimes greater than those lost through termination. The interesting thing here is that in, as an economic matter, any alternative earnings stream is an offset to one's lost earnings due to termination. However, this isn't true universally from a legal standpoint. What do you mean? I'm in California, and in California, the law doesn't require a jury to consider as mitigation or as mitigating earnings those earnings that aren't comparable to those earned by the plaintiff while working for the defendant. For example, suppose a 55-year-old banking executive is shown the door by his employer. Uh, the banker begins a lengthy job search in banking, but can't find anything that really works. Instead, as many employees do, to make ends meet, he takes a job working in a financial area, say as an accounting clerk uh, for a manufacturer or for another, another company, but he's making 60% less money and he has to travel an hour each way to and from work. An economist might argue that the economic harm suffered by the loss of the banking job is reduced by the earnings from working as an accounting clerk since there are earnings being generated that offset those earnings that he otherwise would have made. But the law may not view that, those earnings, as mitigation. Here, unless the replacement work is similar in responsibility, work assignment, hours, and even location, the plaintiff's attorney can and often does argue that the earnings from the new position are not comparable and do not need to be considered for purposes of damage mitigation. Do you ever opine on the comparability of positions? I generally do not. That's squarely in the realm of the lawyer's argument or a vocational expert's argument. Um, a, typically, a vocational expert may opine about that, or an attorney may ask me to either consider a position comparable or incomparable for purposes of my analysis. So the question of comparability is really a legal one? That's right. That is correct. What about the level of effort to find a new job? Do you ever opine on whether or not a plaintiff should have been able to find comparable employment in some set period of time? I do not. Again, that's a vocational question, and the economist doesn't generally delve into that area. 
uh, I am often asked to assume that the plaintiff will be able to find comparable employment in some distant period, say five years. What do you do then? Well, here I simply calculate damages out to the point where the plaintiff should be able to eliminate them. In that particular case, it would be within five years. Your fourth issue you're going to talk to us about, uh, the growth path of earnings benefits from alternative employment. That sounds like it's closely associated with the question of comparable employment. How does the economist determine how a plaintiff's alternative earnings will grow and say how long it should take to mitigate his or her harm? If the plaintiff has found alternative employment and that employment is deemed comparable, um, I can look to historic norms of growth for that position. We may be able to use the plaintiff's own experience if they've been in that position for any length of time, or we may be able to use other similarly situated employees' earnings growth rates to see how the plaintiff's earnings should grow over time. Can you use government data on earnings growth to make a determination if no job-specific data are available? Uh, yes, and I of- and I oftentimes do. And does the estimated growth in the alternative earnings essentially determine how long damages will exist? That's exactly right. Think of two parallel lines, one higher than the other, uh, both growing over time. You can think of the top line as representing the earnings and benefits from the position lost by the plaintiff through termination. The lower line represents earnings and benefits from the alternative employment. If the, if the growth rate in earnings of the alternative position is lower than that of the original earnings, then the two lines, they won't actually run parallel. They'll actually diverge over time. In that situation, do the damages ever end? Unless I'm asked to assume some future cutoff date for damages, no. Uh, Damages will exist until the plaintiff leaves the workforce. In fact, damages could continue during the plaintiff's retirement if his retirement earnings are also lower from the alternative employment. What about a situation where the alternative earnings and benefits look like they will grow faster than the earnings and benefits of the original job? What do you do? That is a situation where the two lines we were just discussing would actually converge over time. Here, damages could end relatively quickly, or they could take, still could take some time to end if the two lines are far apart at the beginning. In other words, if you find a a low-paying job with a lot of growth potential, you may have high damages initially, um, but those two growth, those two lines of growth over time will converge but it still may take some time. But they could end sooner too, right? Certainly. I have a question. Suppose the two earning lines converge in five years, but the plaintiff has a work life that should last another, say, 15 years. Since the alternative earnings are growing faster than the original earnings, doesn't that mean that the plaintiff could ultimately be better off in the new position? Economically, this can be true. This is a situation where the law steps in and precludes the consideration of those out-year higher earnings. I oftentimes jokingly refer to the defendants trying to make this claim as the, quote, we canned you for your own good defense. Um, While it might be true that the plaintiff could ultimately be better off in the new position, where in the, the last 10 years of employment, they're actually earning more in their new found position. The law doesn't require an offset for those out years. 
the law says that once damages have been mitigated, the damages are the, the question of damages has been has been answered. The offset years don't count. The defendant doesn't get to count those those higher earnings in the out years as a way of eliminating or reducing those damages. The damages essentially end when the two lines converge then? That's right. Again, there sometimes is a tension between the economics of damages and the law of damages. Well, Dr. Mala, you have given us quite a lot of information, and we just want to say thank you for being here. But before we let you go, we ask everybody their first time there on the podcast a, the same question. So the question for you is, what is your favorite part about being an economist? Uh, my favorite part of being an economist is I get to teach. Uh, even though I don't do it in a classroom setting, uh, I consider my opportunities to testify at trial an opportunity to teach a jury something about economics and something that's hopefully useful to them, not only in that case, but hopefully uh, in their everyday life. Well, thank you again, uh, Chip, for being here. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Charles Mala, head over to our website at www.econone.com. Thank you for joining us on Inside Expert. Inside Expert.